through 25 seasons. Hey! 4,561 episodes. I believe the Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the LOLs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly. I miss him every single minute. The moments that mattered. The eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. 1995, the O.J. Simpson trial, the Bronco chase, the bloody glove, and the shocking not guilty verdict. The players became instant celebrities, including Los Angeles police detective Mark Furman, denying that he ever used racial slurs, then the damaging tapes, and ultimately a perjury conviction for lying under oath. I talked to Mark Furman about why he didn't tell the truth at the time, a few months after OJ's acquittal. Why not just go for the truth and whatever happens, happens? Because once you admit you've said the word, then the defense loses its steam, because yes, you've said the word. Yes, you've said it. I'd agree with you 100%. I, I was wrong. Do you wrong. now wish that you had said yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I owe everybody an apology, including you. And I'm sorry for that. Why me? Because you're part of this, this nation. Mm-hmm. Not just black and white, but the nation. Do you think you are a racist, Mark Furman? I'm not a racist, no. Did you plant the glove? No, absolutely not. Could you have planted the glove? Absolutely impossible. Do you have remorse? Do you have remorse and regrets? About what I did in this case? Mm -hmm. No, because I did a good good job on the detective work in this case, and I I brought forward a lot of evidence, and so did my partner, Brad Roberts. And uh, if that would have just been used, I think history would have uh, been a little different. Well, it's been 13 years since that interview, and we wanted to find out how being associated with the most famous trial in history has impacted his life. So Mark Furman is back today. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing better than I was then. Really? I don't have as much brown hair, though. Yeah, as much. Yes. Oh, yeah. None of us do, but hair color is yes. a beautiful thing, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, so take us back to the night of June 13th, hmm. 1994, when your phone rings at 1.05 in the morning. Uh, well... I, I answered the phone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in my book that, you know, we talked about, Murder in Brentwood, I, I said that I would, I would, knowing everything that happened, I would answer it again. You still would answer it again? I would. You wouldn't answer it again? Uh, I mean, in reflection over the last 15 years, yeah. I will tell I you. I wish you hadn't have picked up that phone. Nobody was worth it. Really? Nobody was worth it. Because how has the notoriety from this trial really affected your life? I'm not the kind of person that wants to do this. Sit on the Oprah show. Well, your show is pretty good. But, okay. Uh, 
You know what I mean? I mean, the I don't I don't like the I don't like the recognition. I'd rather be behind the scenes doing something that interests me very very much. And that that changed completely. Uh -huh. um, I was completely incapable. Let's just imagine that nothing negative ever happened in this. It would have completely ruined my career anyway. Uh, just all the notoriety. Well, when everything was fine, I'd try to go out into the field and work on other murder cases, and all the, the suspects want to talk about the Simpson case. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's pretty debilitating when you can't be taken serious in that regard. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Well, as we just saw 13 years ago, you came on the show, and at the time, you admitted that you had made a mistake and apologized for it. Uh, when I was discussing this with the producers, I said, you know, we have all uh, made mistakes in our life that at some point that perhaps changed the course of our lives. In retrospect, if you had said, because I think a lot of people who have used the N-word in their life, and that does not mean you are racist because you use the N-word. So if you had said at the time, yes, I have used the word, I don't recall using the word, you know, in, in the recent past, but yes, I have used the word in the past. Do you think that it would have been turned into the racial issue? I think with a, with a reputable attorney, yeah. I think it was possible. Uh -huh. uh, with F. Lee Bailey, he was a, a bulldog, uh -huh. and all he wanted was a pound of flesh. Now, what, what's interesting about the whole dynamics of it is that you know, early in my career, mm -hmm. and we never talked about this, I was a young cop trying to soak in everything I saw and mm -hmm. how these veteran officers really operated. And I saw that so many times, that word used. Mm -hmm. What happened? Mm -hmm. A volatile, uncontrollable, unnecessary situation. So within- Where you used the word, is that what you're saying? No, no. when I saw it. Okay. I mean, early in my career. Okay. So. You know, yes, you can say everybody has used the word in some context, but in the context... Yeah, I'm not saying everybody has, but you know I'm saying I'm, you I know think a I'm lot saying. of people have used it, are, uh, you know, and could have used it in their younger years. A lot of Southern people could have used it and not Southern people, and now regret that they used it. Sure. So I'm just saying, if you had said... Because what I was thinking, because I know what that, that pressure is like when you're on the witness stand and the the prosecutor is just out to try to get you, or the defense attorney, to get you to trip yourself up. So if you had, in that moment, thought about what you had said or hadn't said, I, what I'm curious to know is, did you think you'd never said it, or did you think, I now can't say I said it, because if I say I said it, then they're going to think I'm a racist? Well, yes. There's That's both of those thought. things. Okay. See, at work, I never used that word. Mm -hmm. I never addressed anybody. That way, because I, you could see the, the, the problems that it created for other people. I watch this, this is totally yeah. honest. And there's, there's a, all kinds of words that you can use to tell somebody that you don't like them very much. You mm -hmm. don't need to do that. Uh, then the other thing is, is, once you open up that door, mm -hmm. it's a never ending door. But I wasn't thinking, I think, that far ahead in a projection. Mm -hmm. I'm th I was thinking in a, in a personal sense, in my conduct as a police officer and how I treated people on the street and what I said to them. And, and that's the context of which a trial is supposed to be in. Yeah. I never thought about those tapes as a fictional screenplay. 
I thought about those for years. It was like nine years before. Mm -hmm. I didn't even think about it. Um, nobody believes that. So that's, I, I can't make people believe what they don't want to believe. So the trial ends and you go on with your life, but you now have basically lost your identity as a... No, I became too identifiable. Too identifiable. Yeah. But you're no longer a cop, which was your identity. That's terrible. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried to make the best of it, and I tried to say, well, I was going to retire anyway, but I, I know I would have stayed for another seven years. There mm -hmm. was a couple units that I really wanted to be in that were kind of courting me. And... Uh, what did you do after that? What did you do after the trial? Well, I... You know, to tell you the truth, I just... You wrote a book. Well, I wrote a book, but before that, I was just trying to put my life together. I was working as an electrical apprentice with a friend of mine. I was mm -hmm. living in Idaho, where I planned on moving long before this trial. And, and uh, I was just kind of saying, okay, let's just let it lie. Let it lie. And I had to try Tried to Try to move on with your life. I had to try to figure out something else that interested me, except for being out late at night drinking bad coffee with my, my buddies. You know what? I, I often have dreams of interviewing O.J. Simpson. I have dreams of interviewing O.J. Simpson and him confessing to me. <laughs> Do you have those dreams? You, you, no, I don't have those dreams. <laughs> <laughs> but but you, can get, you. you can get some help. You, yeah, yeah, I yes, can get some help. Some help. I, I can get some, maybe I need help with that. I'm just thinking, that would be the ultimate interview. I always think that would be an ultimate interview. I'm sitting there, well, I'm What talking. would he confess to? He would confess to the murder. He would tell me everything that he did. I have that, I have that dream that he's going to do that, and that it's not going to be a book, and it's not going to be named a fictional book. Did you read that book? Oh, yes. And what did you think of that book? He read Murder in Brentwood, and he knows absolutely I know how the murder went down, and he tried to make an excuse and account for every key piece of the murder to diffuse the evidence that was in my book. It was, it was fascinating. Do you... Would you want to sit down and talk to him? Oh, yes. And what would you want to say to him? Well, I, I think the first thing I would say, first, I, I, I could only approach that in an interrogation uh -huh. style, uh -huh. which, believe me, an interrogation isn't like on TV. It can last for days and weeks, and mm -hmm. it can go... But what would be the... What would be the, the first thing? The one thing that you would say, one or two or three things that you would say to him? The first thing I'd say is, I know you didn't mean to kill two people, and you didn't go there for that, and it wasn't a first-degree murder. Okay. And then the second thing would be? Talk to me. Because nobody has given you a chance to say just exactly how it happened and how you got caught up in it. Mm -hmm. And the evidence is pretty clear, exactly the progression of how the murder went down. What do you think happened? Oh, he and Nicole... Well, you know, Simpson had a, a history of stalking her uh, in, in a way that he wanted to see what she was doing. He would say, I'm leaving... Um, earlier than he actually would when he was going out of town. And then he would, he would talk. I think he was spying on her. Mm -hmm. and I, he knew about a relationship uh, between her and Ron. I had un uncovered this before the trial ever started. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he wanted to know uh, exactly, for some sick reason, he wanted to see it and for himself. And, but did uh, he think at the time that he was going to be there, that Ron was going to be there? Well, I, I, I don't know that specifically, but uh, he knew that Nicole was home, and when he was gone, her, I guess, uh, habit or her, her M.O. Mm -hmm. was that 
you know, then he's not around, so then I can bring somebody over, over to, the to the house where. Um, so you don't think he went there to kill two people? No, I think that she saw him mm -hmm. hiding or uh, slurking around in the, in the bushes, and I think there was a confrontation at the front door. And she was in bare feet, and the door was open. The bathtub was running, and there was a confrontation at that door. What about the gum and the fingerprint? That we never, uh, that was never admitted as evidence. Uh, when you leave the crime scene, you kind of leave a pace and a, and a consciousness of, of what the crime scene is. So there was a lot of evidence left at both scenes. Uh, I went back several times. I found uh, blood one day. I went back, blood drops. Uh, another day, I was there with uh, my boss, and I was just kind of looking around and I was moving things with my pencil, and I go. I got some chewing gum here on the path where the suspect left to go back and get into a vehicle where the blood drops were to the left side of the bloody shoe prints. And he goes, would you stop finding evidence? And I, I, I'm sure it was a joke, but it was a large piece of bubble gum with at least three molar impressions. Now, for, for anybody that isn't in law enforcement, you have somebody in custody, you have a crime scene, you acquire evidence that in some regards, is almost like a fingerprint. You write a search warrant, you get a, a dentist to go in, cut into the jail, you get a mouth impression, they compare as a forensic dentist, and he says, that is one and the same. Nothing was done with it. Nothing was done with it? With the bloody, bubble gum? Nothing, nothing was done with it. The bloody what? fingerprint. And then the bloody fingerprint. The suspect, Simpson, when he leaves, there is a gate and there's a brass turnstile on that gate. Now, he's injured to the left side of his body. His finger is cut. There's blood on his hand. He doesn't have a glove on this hand. He has a glove on this hand. The gate, there's a thumbprint right on the brass turnstile in blood. As he went through, he pushed it open. Now, I found it. Roberts actually, Brad Roberts, my partner, actually saw it first. He showed me, and we go, Wow, that's at least 10 points in quality, which it's a standard that that's an identification. So all these pieces of evidence I'm noting, and then when I relinquish it, nobody read my notes for two months. Oh, my goodness. So the bloody thumbprint was never... Oh, it was discovered. It was discovered by the Brown family, Nicole's parents, who, who took custody of the condominium two days later, they brought over a locksmith to change the lock. The locksmith, during the civil trial, uh, those attorneys actually did their job, and they found out that that locksmith actually took that lock off, saw the bloody fingerprint, figured it had already been processed, threw it away, put in a new lock. Wow. So what are your thoughts on Marsha Clark and Christopher Darton, how they handle this case? Marsha Clark and, and, and Chris Darden, I, I've never seen a case handled that way. They allowed the murder weapon to be eliminated. Phil Van Adder completely routed them from having a murder weapon. Um, they, they used DNA as a trump card to trump everything, and then they confused everybody that knew anything about DNA. Mm -hmm. Remember when this happened, the country wasn't so familiar with, you know, CSI and all of those kinds of shows. And DNA wasn't a part of our, you know, nomenclature. Um, I think Marsha Clark and Chris Darden were way over their head. And I think the media made it 
10 times over their head. Yeah. What did you mean when you just said earlier about routing the, rerouting the, uh, the, the murder weapon? Well, Van Adder, you know, uh, I, I'm not a Phil Van Adder fan. Mm -hmm. uh, Lang and Van Adder were the detectives in charge. Yeah, they're the, they're the detectives that actually took over the case in the early morning hours and wanted to go up to Rockingham. Uh, he left half the evidence at Rockingham. They left probably a good percentage of the evidence at Bundy. Uh, they, they just didn't have uh, any conscious awareness of a hot crime scene. Mm -hmm. They just didn't. The murders of O.J. Simpson's ex-wife, Nicole, and her friend, Ron Goldman, happened outside Nicole's condo on Bundy Drive in the Brentwood neighborhood of Los Angeles. Police searched for evidence there and at O.J.'s house on Rockingham. The murder weapon was believed to be a knife. It was never found. Van Adder figured that if O.J. Simpson was on location doing a movie about Navy SEALs and he purchased a stiletto that the full length was, and I am not exaggerating, it was over 13 inches, that he purchased that, so that must be the murder weapon. So in the prelim, they bring on the man that sold it to him, and now you're wedded to that. Now the prosecution has a problem. Well, that knife blade was seven inches long and all of the knife wounds in both bodies that were actually stab wounds were four inches long. They were narrower and thinner than the stiletto. It was an impossibility of the stiletto, but now you eliminated the true murder weapon. You can't go back and pick another murder weapon. It's not like you get to keep picking until you get it right. I see, I see, I see. That was just the beginning. You know, if you're in a situation like this where your reputation and your, really, career is on the line and so many things, as you are saying, were bungled and mishandled, how do you ever get over that? Well, I, I don't know if you ever do. I mean, you always have, like, uh, the, the what-if rolls through your head every once in a while. Uh, but you don't get over it. Um, you know, it's, it's to, to describe it best, it's like, the first week, um, it looks like we've got this case. It's just so simple. Every, I mean, you have to not step on evidence. There was so much evidence. Mm -hmm. Everywhere we looked, and it was, there, were, there was a continuity that was incredible. It was like it was telling a story. Everywhere you went, there was no holes. Do you blame yourself for the reason he got off? Because if it hadn't been, if this trial hadn't been turned into a racial issue, do you think he would have served time? No. Would have been found guilty? No. You do not? No. So that don't... jury, mm -hmm. and um, in some regards, I, I think, you know, on, on one hand, I could say they were totally morally corrupt to the point of being criminals. On the other hand, I completely sympathize. You know, when you... With the jury? Yes, because... Why do you say they were totally morally corrupt? Well, because they didn't listen to the evidence. We, we convict people of one drop of blood and a partial license plate, and they're on death row. And here we have 300 pieces of blood evidence and all the testimonial evidence and injuries on the suspect and, uh, I mean, everything. I mean, there was no hole in the case. So the jury saw that, but, you know, you have to understand the jury. When they changed the venue of the case, brought it downtown, mm -hmm. the jury pool, now they wanted it to be more racially um, balanced towards mm -hmm. Simpson. And the prosecution did that. They were kind of like, you know, given in to that. They didn't want to fight it and not have it in Santa Monica. Well, the jurors, people don't understand what it's like to live in a community where you have an icon, a hero. 
Now the jury might hear everything and they might say, well, I understand why he's guilty. But their community doesn't understand why he's guilty. So they're not only passing that verdict because he was a football hero and because he was African-American. They were protecting their own family, their own homes, themselves, because they convict him, they go back to the wrong community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've been to houses where people get it. They call the police because somebody's dealing dope and there's a drive-by the next day. So it's serious business. It's a double-edged sword for the jury. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this trial actually changed the way the media covers murders? I think that the uh, O.J. Simpson case, you know, there was really no intent of the media. It happened, and now we had satellite TV. Where we We all watched the Bronco. How many people saw the Bronco, Chase? Yep, and how many people weren't (laughs) watching and somebody called you and told you to watch? I remember Gail's like, turn on the TV! Yeah, okay, yeah. I I was sitting, uh, eating lunch with a city attorney talking about another case, and Mm -hmm. Commander Gascon was on, and he was supposed to surrender, and all of a sudden, he's there in the stage by himself, and I go, I gotta go. Something's really wrong. Something's wrong. I get to the station, my partner throws me a shotgun and a vest and goes, we gotta go up to the Rockingham estate, he's on the run. Wow. So, I mean, that, yeah, that was an interesting day. So, well, when you talk about the media, um, you know, the, the media, there was like this unintentional converging uh, of technology, reality TV, bored people, uh, all these crime shows on TV. I mean, people were interested in this, and then all of a sudden we can give it to them, and they realized, man, they're gonna make a lot of money and they don't have to pay for actors. You know, it's so interesting, Stephen and I, during this whole process, you know, of watching it, I can't remember where in the trial, he said, he's gonna get off. And I said, he's not gonna get off. What do you mean he's gonna, he goes, because it's now been turned into something else. He's now, it's now been turned into a business. Everybody is making money off of the business of the trial. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's really, personally, I knew that you I mean, say this made murder entertainment for the first absolute. time. Absolutely. Murder yeah. is entertainment. Yeah. Is, is there, I mean, anybody that doesn't turn on any kind of satellite or cable that doesn't find a TV show on murder, mm-hmm. whether it's a drama or, or real life, uh, it's, it's big business. Are you surprised, you know, okay, so he was acquitted and, you know, a jury found him not guilty. There are a lot of people in this country who, uh, like myself, believe that he was guilty. And, um, uh, Gail says it's a standard for dating, that if you, if you go out with a guy and he believes O.J. was innocent, it's see you later. <laughs> you ask the guy, you get in a conversation and the guy goes, no, he didn't do it. You go, uh, I'll take the check, please. Yeah. See, you, see, yeah. see you later. Does it frustrate you that so many people for so long believed that he was innocent and, th- and that it was divided along racial lines? Um. No, but I think that, I mean, the peer pressure of both, both sides of that argument create people that are going to be followers and people that are going to be leaders. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you go out drinking beer, there's one person that's the kind of leader of the group, and yeah. if you want to stay in the group, then you kind of agree. Uh-huh. Um, that's the way it goes. Are you surprised that he's in jail now? No. You're not? No, I, I think it's, it's, un, it's unfortunate for O.J. Simpson that somebody didn't um, really get control of him early on. 
you know, he was always kind of a bad boy on the fringe, and there mm -hmm. was people that made money on him that kept him out of the media eye and law enforcement eye, and, and you know, he was actually, you know, uh, convicted of a, a misdemeanor uh, in a domestic violence situation right there mm -hmm. in West LA. And they couldn't do anything about that, but that should have been a wake-up call. Do you think that there was a part of him that in spite of it all, uh, enjoyed the attention. I think he always enjoys the attention. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, uh, narcissism yeah. is probably his middle name, but you know, you have to, he is personable. Yeah. And he does engage charming. people, charming, yeah, charming, very charming. And there was a lot of uh, police officers that were his friends. Um, and I knew, I knew a couple. Uh, I personally was only up there once when Nicole and, and he were having a, a battle and you know that's back before there was mandatory domestic mm -hmm. violence laws so if she doesn't want to sign a report mm -hmm. there's nothing we can do former LAPD detective Mark Furman now analyzes crimes as a correspondent for the Fox News Channel he wrote a book last year called the murder business why did you become part of the media when you have obviously such strong opinions against the media. Well, Fox News wasn't around then. Mm -hmm. So I, and I, I think Fox News is different. Uh, I, I'm not a, a carnival sideshow act. Mm -hmm. um, this is about, you're a detective and we need somebody that actually can find out stuff, put us on the right track, do no harm. Mm -hmm. And if we can push it forward. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's been a breakdown in investigative journalism, period? I don't think there is any investigative. There's, there's a few people that can do investigative journalism, but uh, an investigative reporter is because they say they are. They don't have any experience in how to investigate. Mm -hmm. And the Simpson case is a, is a perfect example. I mean, I, I was waiting, and so was my partner, Brad Roberts, for just a question, just one question. And they would have had their career made, but to this date, they still, they still don't get it. Why do you think they never put your partner, Brad Roberts, on the witness stand? They couldn't put Brad Roberts on because Phil Van Adder effectively testified that he found many things that Brad did. Can't have Brad finding the same things. Uh, it gets a little worse. Brad Roberts actually is watching this. I'm not watching anything. I was ordered not to. So he's watching this and he's getting madder and madder. And Brad Roberts is the one that led Marsha Clark around the Rockingham estate in the afternoon of June 13th and showed her everything that he and I had found. Marsha Clark saw right then the clothes in the washing machine. She saw the blood in the maid's half bath. Well, Van Adder never took any of the evidence. They just didn't take it. So now when Brad is is the only person on the LAPD that was, I mean, even people directing traffic were interviewed. Nobody interviewed Brad Roberts. Nobody from robbery homicide, nobody from the prosecutor's office. He was never talked to after that first day. I'm trying to understand why though. Well, because, why. because Phil Van Adder effectively eliminated him some way. Now it gets complicated. Because he'd already said that I found these things, so well, you can't bring in the guy that actually did find them. Even, That's what you're saying. Right. Okay. It doesn't feel to me like, unless I'm misunderstanding or misinterpreting, that there was full closure here. 
See, I would like to, like, even when people sue me, I want to sit down and look them in the face and say, why did you do that? Or let's talk about it. Or this is what really happened and you know it. So I, I'm wondering, is there anything you would want to say to Van Adder? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what would you want to say to him? Let's, let's hear that. That he was a, he was a clown in a, in a detective suit. That everything he touched, everything he touched turned to lead. We contacted senior LAPD detective Phil Van Adder for a statement. He declined to comment except to say, it's been 15 years and he's moved on. Okay, Marsha Clark. She knew. She knew all about Van Adder. She knew all about Roberts. She knew that Van Adder didn't find that evidence because Roberts told her exactly. She covered it up. She didn't want Roberts on the stand. Everybody was afraid Roberts would pull the rug out from underneath them. Okay. There's only two people that didn't do anything wrong in this case, and that was Roberts and myself. Everybody else has something to run away from in that case. How could you say you didn't do anything wrong when you lied on the witness stand? Because that had nothing to do with the murder case. You got to remember, when you get to court, the murder case is put to bed. The investigation's done. You can't change the physical evidence. You can't change what was booked. You so can't change the you're talking about the gathering of the evidence and the preparing That was the my case. job. Yeah, okay. The prosecutor, their job is to put together a story in a courtroom. Mm -hmm. And Chris Darden and Marsha Clark did not put that story together like anybody could understand it. But didn't you think Johnny Cochran was, was brilliant in his, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit? As a poet? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to remember. Mm -hmm. Marsha Clark is the prosecutor. She sets the pace to what they can cross. Mm -hmm. She never went beyond she, the she glove. Wanted, Chris, Chris and Marsha are the ones who wanted him to try on the glove, though. Are they the ones who wanted him to try on the glove? Chris was. Chris wanted him to try on the glove. Terrible. I have the same size hands, size 12. Mm -hmm. Have me try on the glove. You don't take something that shrinks, that's been in an evidence locker, drying and shrinking. Leather is, is like human skin. It's never the same after it's, it's soaked with blood or water or anything else. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you, you really have to see that the prosecutors... So, Chris Darton, what would you say to him? Stop being angry. Stop being angry. Mm -hmm. You know, you participated in the failure. I was, I, was, I was there watching. You did nothing creative. You did nothing to actually stop this. Mm. So what would you say to the Goldman and the Brown families? I wish I would have stopped the trial. Roberts and I could have stopped the trial in August of 1994, and we should have. Stopped it how? Well, we stopped Van Adder. When, when we saw that he was taking Robert's observations and discoveries and making them his own, we should have stopped it right there. We should have just said no. Anybody here ever been on trial? Okay. Good for you. <laughs> there is a moment when you, when, I don't know, what, regardless of what the case is, where you are faced with, am I gonna try to win this? Do I participate in what I need to do to try to win this? Or am I going to remain true to myself? And I will have to say, I've been on trial a couple of times, and I've had that moment a couple of times where you say, you know what? I'm going to remain true to myself, and I don't care what the jury thinks, right. regardless of what they decide. This trial is over for me. 
because I know I've done what I was supposed to do. So I would think that you not doing that for yourself would make you forever feel like that is what I should have done. I, I should have, well, we never should have even been in the courtroom. I mean, we should have, we should have stopped it, regrouped, and if we could still go forward after then, the prelim. Did you think if I stop this trial, if I do that, 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 that's what I'm talking about at that moment. If I say that, then I'm going to ruin this whole case. And this, you know, well, Roberts and I, be a mistrial. We sat in our, our, our detective car and we said exactly that. We go, what do we do now? Wow. And, w and we had a conversation about this. And I said, well, we got the bloody fingerprint at Bundy. That's a dead bang. That's a, that's a plea out. There's mm -hmm. no getting around that. And they go, and you have to remember, we're, we're in an organization, mm -hmm. LAPD. If anything was the cause of an LAPD detective to stop that trial, LAPD would have been the bad guys. Yeah. Again. Yeah, yeah. So, and we have- Big, uh, big moral dilemma. Well, we have a loyalty too. Yeah. To, you know, our, our, it's, it's nothing sinister, just we have a loyalty. We, we, wanna, we wanna push on. He's a bad guy. He murdered two innocent people. Tell me this, your biggest regret is that you didn't stop the trial? My biggest regret is I answered the phone. I would have a lot rather <laughs> gone into work and acted stupid and go, where is everybody? It would have been robbery homicides case. Did you, have you played the what if game with yourself over the years? What if I hadn't answered the phone? What if I hadn't said? Yes. I mean, I, I see, I'm a paycheck guy. I like to worry about paying the bills and having a paycheck every two weeks. I like that life. I like the blue collar life, kind of rough and tumble and being with, you know, People Buddies. that really inspire me personally, and that's the respect I want. So, yeah, to have that again, or to continue in kind of an anonymous way, just playing out my role, yeah. Do you feel fulfilled in life now? Do no. You, feel fulfilled? you don't feel fulfilled? No. I try little bits and pieces to, uh, to find something, but I, I'm... I'll, look this at, being a detective? Oh, look at 16 years. That's almost the amount of time I spent on the department. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not that broken down. I could still solve a couple things. Mm -hmm. So all this time I've wasted. What do you want your legacy to be? How do you hope people remember you? Well, it's, I, I've actually played this over in my head, what the media would say. The disgraced detective from the O.J. Simpson case died today. That'll be the lead sentence. You think? Oh, yeah, because that's the way the media works. They always find the thing that's the most uh, reflective of how they feel uh -huh. and what will get the most attention. What would you want the legacy to be? What would you want the media to say? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Nothing. Thank you for this time. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah show, The Podcast. And I thank you for listening.